Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pros and Content Podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, and I'm hosting our data-driven CMO series, during which I will interview CMOs who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their business forward. In these interviews, we're going to reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, but also a ton of fun personal stories and great career advice from these incredible leaders. I hope you enjoy. Hey, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Data-Driven CMO. Today, I'm joined by Justin Steinman, who is the CMO of Definitive Healthcare. Welcome, Justin. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I am fascinated by not only your kind of life story, but professional story in the last two years in particular. You've definitely gone through a ton of roller coasters and have somehow managed to go through the journey of a marketer while also going through the journey of a product manager and a bunch of other roles. So I would love to get started by just you sharing a little bit of your professional journey with us. Sure. So my professor journey goes probably longer than I would like at this point in my life. I have an undergraduate degree in English and history, double major, which I promptly used to actually go write data conversion programs for Accenture. Can I just ask you real quick, why did you decide to study English and history? Because I love to read and I love to write. And my thesis is actually about how history impacts the literature of the time and how literature impacts the current events of the time. And so it was kind of this interesting cycle. It was a great way to go read books for four years and go study in the British Library and go to all sorts of cool places. That sounds awesome. It sounds like my type of person, which is a nerd. Absolutely. So anyways, I graduated with that fantastic degree and realized that I was pretty much unemployable with it. And so I went through corporate recruiting and got a job with Accenture writing data conversion, as I said. And literally the only thing I knew about SAP was that they were three letters of the alphabet. I did that for four years and realized I did not want to be a programmer for the rest of my life. So I went and convinced somebody to hire me in marketing. I was the first marketing manager hired at a supply chain software company in the height of the dot-com bubble. Did that for a couple of years. Company did not succeed. It ultimately was sold off for parts. I managed to pull the ripcord and go to business school where I learned all the things I didn't learn in college about statistics and economics and finance and all that kind of cool stuff, how to launch and build a product. And then from there, I actually went and joined Novell. And my first job at Novell was at a sales role. Did that for about a year, decided sales, while really important, wasn't for me. Why did you decide that? What was it about sales? I felt like I was, A, there's the unrelenting pressure that was of sales. And I respect and appreciate all the sales professionals who can do that. There are the highs and the lows, and I wasn't quite... I'd say emotionally strong enough at that point in my life to deal with the highs and the lows that come with being in sales. A lot of people are, and I have the utmost respect for people, but it just, it wasn't me. I thought maybe I could have an opportunity to leverage my reading and writing background and maybe do something in marketing. I was always attracted to the business strategy that goes with marketing, right? And so I moved into product marketing. Do you mean to say that marketing in terms of like emotional highs and lows is easier to navigate than sales? Or did you just not know that it was going to be as intense? It's just a different kind of intensity, right? I always talk about marketing as the art of one to many and sales as the art of one to one, right? And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of pressures that come with being in marketing. I felt in sales, there were more things that were not in my personal control. Right. And again, you're talking about 20 years ago, my limited perspective. I think I have a broader perspective now, but at that point in time, I felt working as an individual rep, I didn't have a lot of things that were in my control. And I felt like 
my life, my financial success was determined or driven by factors outside that control. Something going on macroeconomically, something happening at my client, and I didn't like that kind of lack of control in my life. Maybe if I was a better salesperson, things might have been different, but I wasn't, and here I am. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. It's interesting to think about failing in something just to discover your area of genius in something else. I mean, as far as advice to the folks out there who are in the early stages of their career, trying is the only way to figure out if you're not going to want to do something or if you're really good at something. So it's a good example you're giving, a good lesson that's implied. Exactly. Exactly. You got to try a lot of different things. And heck, I'm still trying new things at this point in my career, right? I'm doing all sorts of new stuff every day. And that's what I like about it. And, you know, never be afraid to take a chance and also never be afraid to say, hey, it's not working. Let's go do something else. Right. Macro or micro. So kind of carrying on on the thumbnail here, I went and I transitioned into product marketing. I was running product marketing for uh, a product called SUSE Linux Enterprise, which was the second leading Linux distribution behind Red Hat at the time. I did that, did pretty well at that, was ultimately moved up at Novell to run all the product and solution marketing working for the uh, CMO, doing side projects for the CEO, one of which was helping him sell Novell to private equity. And in between deal sign and deal close, I got this call from a headhunter asking me if I'd be interested in going to GE Healthcare in a marketing role. I didn't know anything about the healthcare industry at all, right? I had gone to my doctor and that was pretty much it, right? But now I had the opportunity to go work at GE Healthcare. And as part of that, I was basically going to go work in their EMR, electronic medical record, and RCM, revenue cycle management, so EMR rev cycle. It was a business called IDX that GE Healthcare had bought. And the CMO at that time, brilliant guy, his name's Sean Burke. Sean hired me and said, hey, man, we need you to come and bring, you know, at that point, I had about a decade of software marketing experience. Like, bring that decade of software marketing experience to GE, and in return, we'll teach you everything you need to know about healthcare. We're swimming in healthcare knowledge at GE. I was like, yeah, it's pretty obvious. So I uh, made that deal, went to go work for Sean. When Sean moved on to Greener Pastures, he actually went to go run GE Healthcare Japan. They promoted me to be chief marketing officer for GE Healthcare IT, what is now GE Healthcare Digital. I did that for about three years. It was a, a $2.1 billion business, really responsible for, again, EMR RevCycle and also digital imaging was part of the portfolio. Great job, global responsibility. I had people working for me in nine countries. I was at the height of meaningful use, and EMR was rapidly spreading across the country. It was, it was a great business to be in. I really loved my time there. After doing that for about three and a half years, my boss, who was the CEO who I was very close with, he moved on to go be the CEO of Barco. So I kind of picked my head up and started to look around. One thing I decided to do is that I didn't want to take my next job in marketing. I was worried that if I went and I went and did another CMO job at that point in time, I would get typecast, if you will, boxed in as a oh, piece of CMO and that's all he'll ever be for the rest of his life. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with being a CMO for the rest of your life? We're back to being a CMO now. Absolutely nothing is wrong with being a CMO for some people. I wanted to make sure I had option value, right? And, you know, someday if I wanted to be CEO, I needed to do something other than marketing. I don't know if I want to be a CEO or not. I don't have to make that decision. I haven't made that decision. The future is yet to be written, right? But I knew if I went and did that, and look, nothing is ever written in stone, but I was worried that I'd get typecast, right? And I didn't want to get typecast. So uh, I managed to convince the fine people at Aetna. I was the right guy to come and run product management for their commercial business. And in that lingo, commercial business basically is anything that Aetna 
would sell to an employer, the healthcare insurance and all the ancillary products, whether you're a two-person startup or the Home Depot or some company in between size, right? I had a really unique opportunity to take the healthcare lounge that I built at GE, as well as some of the product development process and knowledge that I learned from GE and bring that to Aetna. Did that for about two years. And then uh, the small little company called CVS showed up, knocked on the door and bought Aetna. You know, I spent the next two years at the heart of a fascinating integration, trying to figure out how to build new products that took advantage of the combined might of Aetna and CVS. Really, really interesting stuff. That had kind of run its course. I decided that I was personally done with big corporate America. I mean, CVS is top five Fortune 5 companies, right? And it's also a very unique place to essentially dance with two giant elephants on both sides trying to get them to do innovation product-wise. So I can, I mean, you're not saying it, but let me just say it. I think that must be one, unique in someone's lifetime and professional career, but two, really difficult as well. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was unique. It was difficult. It was rewarding. We launched a couple of really cool products and had a couple other ones on the drawing board, including one that launched after I left, took almost a year after I left, but it still got out the door. I wanted to do something smaller, faster, more agile if you will. And so when I joined Definitive, you know, it was about $115, $118 million at that point in 2020. I had networked my way to the CEO, Jason. It's like to introduce to Jason, you know, true story through my uh, neighbor who lives three doors down. I had mentioned to him, I was literally walking the dog that I was looking for a new gig. And he's like, you should talk to this guy, Jason. He knows a lot about healthcare. I don't know what you do, Justin. You seem like you know a lot about healthcare. He knows a lot about healthcare. Go talk to him. Jason and I hit it off, and I wound up joining as CMO here at Definitive Healthcare. Definitive Healthcare, we're the industry leader in healthcare commercial intelligence. When I would join the company, there was no category, healthcare commercial intelligence. Jason historically had not really invested in the world of marketing. He'd really built a product and sales engine. And he had taken some private equity investment from Advent International in 2019. And the mantra was, hey, if you guys are going to go public at some point, because when you take PE, that kind of heads towards, starts the clock ticking towards an IPO, you're going to need to scale up your marketing function, Jason, and bring in someone who's been around the block, operated marketing at scale. And so that's why Jason invited me ultimately to join his leadership team. That's awesome. And you went through an IPO. You're missing the probably another one of those unique life slash career moments, but must have been really incredible to go so quickly from you joining the company to an IPO. So tell us a bit about how that was like. Yeah, so that was incredible. And candidly, that was not the real plan, right? When I first joined the company, Jason's like, yeah, we are two, three years away from an IPO. Justin, you'll have plenty of time to build out the marketing organization, to build out the demand generation funnel. We knew we needed to do a repositioning. The company at that point was really healthcare data and analytics to help you grow, which while wasn't incorrect, really lacked any sort of aspiration. If you're going to go public, you need to have a category. You need to be the leader in that category. We didn't really have a true vision, mission, storyline, repositioning of the company. There was no real tagline. Visual identity, our tone of voice was inconsistent. Our marketing architecture, our marketing tech stack, excuse me, was not designed for the scale at which we were hoping to operate. And we were a company, at that point in time, we were about a rule of 80 company, growing in you know, roughly 40% every year on 40% margins, give or take, back in our private days. And so we weren't 
really prepared to scale and grow. And I was like, oh, I got plenty of time, lots of fix, bring in my team. You know, I'd been here 90 days and the board said, check that. You guys are all going to go public in the summer of 2021. And it was kind of one of those come again moments. (laughs) What? We had the, we'll call it again, unique opportunity (laughs) to do a company branding exercise at a great agency. Shout out to my friends at Superhuman who helped us think this through at the same time as we were doing an IPO. I would not recommend that as a general best practice. There were literally days, you know, when we were locking things in the positioning in the morning with the agency, and I'm talking to the bankers in the afternoon about how we're going to put it in to the S1. And when you're going public, there are certain deadlines that you have to meet. For example, we had a industry analyst day where we spoke to financial analysts who were potentially representing banks interested in investing or being participating in our IPO, we had to have our new website ready for that. And that date wasn't forgiving. Sometimes if you're a CMO and you're going to launch a website and you say, all right, July 1st, and you miss it by a week, you never want to miss a date, but you have that flexibility. In our case, Industry Analyst Day was July 13th. Come hell or high water, our website had to be updated with the new messaging and everything by no later than July 11th. Missing was not an option, could not be an option, right? And so... I've got, everybody says this, I actually have it. I have the world's best marketing team and they pulled this off and did a great job getting everything ready and live for that. And then ultimately we went public on the NASDAQ on September 15th, 2021. It really was a career pinnacle as a marketer or marketeer to see, you know, our definitive healthcare logo up on that NASDAQ tower while kind of laughing to myself that, you know, we pretty much finished designing that logo around like June 2nd. (laughs) And so it went 90 days literally from my laptop screen to the NASDAQ tower in Times Square, which has got to be some sort of record somewhere. You know, I think it's so interesting because listening to you talk, it sounds like you guys basically went through like a very early stage startup process, but to IPOing. You sort of just threw a bunch of things at the wall, knew that there was no real opportunity to fail and had to hustle. What I thought was most impressive actually about what you told me in the prep call was that everyone you hired on your team is still with you. Because I would have assumed that there would have been at least two to three rounds of burnout across the team. So how did you pull that off? Uh, So as I said, I have the world's best marketing team. And so there's a number of things, right? Number one, we were really careful about who we hired and brought the right people in. Number two, I have got three fabulous VPs who work for me and run the teams. And They are just flat out amazing and they are motivators. We all genuinely care about our people. And the third thing is we've empowered people, right? This is very much, we hire you. We want you to bring your whole self to definitive healthcare and we're going to give you an objective and then you're going to tell us the best way to get there, what the right answer is and really express yourself. This isn't a color by the numbers. This is, hey, we got to get the coloring book done can you go tell me what's in the coloring book and then color it the way you think it should be colored and let's make sure everybody is working together. This is very much a culture that values people. We have, candidly, across the company, a really unique and differentiated culture. In the marketing team, I think everybody is working hard, absolutely, but having fun and feels empowered to make a difference. One of my favorite things about marketing is a lot of times you can actually point to something as a deliverable and said, yeah, I did that, right? Whether you're the multimedia producer doing our podcast or whether you're our webmaster owning the overall website infrastructure, the product marketer who, you know, prepares that sales presentation or the demand gen manager helps us, you know, continue to set a record every month for the amount of free trials that we generate. 
it's a very accomplishment-driven culture, and everybody feels empowered to hit their accomplishment or hit their goal in their own way. Yeah. Plus, it's nice to win. And you guys have been winning, which is awesome. It's a really great thing to see. So you've spent a lot of the last two years explaining marketing to non-marketers. I mean, you probably have spent a lot of your career doing that, but I would assume, especially in the last two years, you've had a lot of those conversations. What's been the hardest thing about that? So the hardest thing about this, so I, first of all, I think every marketer spends his or her career explaining marketing to non-marketers, right? Because everybody at some way, shape, or form thinks that they're a marketer. And to some degree, it makes sense, right? We all watch TV. We all see advertisements. We all see billboards, Times Square or otherwise. We're all marketed to when you're reading the web, right? And you become a very good filter really quickly at what messaging resonates with you personally and what messaging doesn't resonate with you. And so I'm never going to march into our CTO's office and say, you know, we should get off Microsoft Azure and move on to Amazon Web Services or the Google Cloud because of these six reasons. I have exactly zero qualifications to have that conversation with him, right? But he is a marketer. He's been marketed to, right? I think there's a difference between being marketed to and being a marketer, obviously. And so I would argue that maybe maybe he also doesn't have the qualifications to ask you why, why <laughs> this is that. But so I think there's actually, I don't know if there's maybe something a little bit deeper about why our marketers question so much about marketing and the value of marketing. Well, I think the reason that marketers are questioned so much and the reason why I think that, you know, it's what we do here works so well is marketers are speaking on behalf of the company. And so everybody is emotionally invested in their company, right? Let's keep picking on my buddy, Scott, the CTO. Scott works 60 to 70 hours a week putting together the best technical infrastructure for our company, right? And he's got a whole team of people working as hard, if not harder than he is. You spend that much time, you're emotionally invested. And when the marketing team goes out and talks about definitive healthcare, whether I like it or not, I'm talking on behalf of Joe and engineering, I'm talking on behalf of Jane and HR. Everybody's kind of got that. And so in my opinion, they're entitled to their opinion about it, right? And it's my job and my team's job to listen to all of those opinions and synthesize it into something that makes sense to the market that we, the entire 900 plus employees at Definitive Healthcare, can go out to the market and talk about And so the moment you as a marketer start saying, whoa, 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 stop. Like, I got this. I'm a professional. You go do your job and I'll go do my job. I'd submit that you've lost, right? And rather, I tell you, a good marketer seeks a lot of feedback from across the organization because we all have blind spots and what can you learn and how can you synthesize and bring everybody in and bring them on the journey and explain to them, well, yes, that's a good idea, but how about if we look at it from this perspective? And then ultimately, you tell that unified story to the market, and if everybody is bought in, then everybody feels good about it. Yeah, I mean, I think to repeat back and summarize what I'm hearing you say is, there's something different about the practice of marketing, and that is you guys are basically, or you guys, we all are the guardians of the brand and people become invested in the brand simply by working at the company. So it's unlike being a CTO or a CFO where you're the guardian of something that's a lot more internal and less emotionally connected to everyone. And so as a result of that, it's not that you're necessarily being called into question is that people are just so invested. They want to hear and understand more about the practice of marketing. I think what that translates to in my head and correct me if I'm wrong is that you know, if you think about success as CMO or success as marketer, what you were saying is 
it's all about your ability to influence and inspire basically and communicate with the rest of the company versus shut the door and say, leave me alone because I know what I'm doing. Yes. And you've got to have really clear, open metrics and you've got to be transparent about them. Right. And that's on a number of things because I could be the most inclusive, open, inspiring CMO in the world. I'm probably not, but I could be. And let's just say for a second that I am. But if my team is not delivering our free trial numbers, it doesn't matter how inspiring I am. I'm out the door because we're not delivering on what the business needs. And I should be out the door if we're not delivering on what the business needs, right? And so you've got to be able to have your scorecard. You've got to be able to explain to everybody how a demand generation funnel works. And then the other thing that you've got to be able to do, it's one of my favorite sayings, I never talk about my marketing budget ever. It's not my marketing budget. It is our marketing budget. The ELT, the executive leadership team, decides together we want to spend X percent of revenue on marketing. It's my job as CMO to get the best return on investment for that dollar. If they give me a million dollars, if you give me $10 million, if you give me $100 million, my job is to get the highest ROI and most efficiently spend that money to deliver results for the business. And you've got to be transparent about where and how that money's being spent because otherwise it's like, oh, we gave Justin $10 million and he did some advertising and he did a podcast. What do we really get from him? That doesn't make any sense. Versus really saying, here's what you bought. Here's why it was a good deal. Here are the results that it delivered. And this is a David Durbin CMO podcast. Like, I would like to think that we're a really good fit for that podcast because this is a very, very data-driven company, right? And I have got monthly KPIs that I report out, quarterly KPIs that I report out. I report in our quarterly KPIs we actually spend 90 minutes as an ELT just discussing the marketing KPIs so they can understand where the return on the investment is and how we're delivering results back to the business. I love that. I have a couple of follow-up questions. I'm going to go deep on that data point you made, but first I want to ask you about the budget piece because I think I do see a lot of CMOs using the words, my budget, but I think really what's important is what's hidden behind those words, which is ultimately they are measuring their own kind of power and gravitas based on how large the budget is. And in fact, our industry reinforces that. If you go to any of the conferences, right, where CMOs are taken to yachts and given rosé, the higher your budget, the more rosé, the more boats, et cetera. I'm not going to those conferences. Maybe I need a bigger budget. I'm not definitely not a buddy to those. Well, it's in Cannes in France. I'm sure you've heard of the conference. And I'm sure that if you're, to be honest, I think the tide is starting to change in the sense that not a lot of the CMOs that are data-driven and ultimately live or die by the scorecard end up going to a lot of these conferences anymore, but it definitely used to be the case. But my question to you is, especially as you're looking to next year, everyone's talking about efficient growth. What that means to me is that maybe the budget goes down or maybe the budget stays flat, but you're being asked to deliver more. What that means is potentially a switch from kind of heavy paid tactics to more organic tactics, but ultimately means that you can't have an ego around your budget and you have to just get creative around how you drive quality and kind of higher conversion with the same or lower budget. So curious how you guys are thinking about that and you as a CMO thinking about the budget for next year. I would tell you having an ego just about anything is dangerous, right? And so you don't want to measure it based on the number of people, the size of your budget or how great you are. Because the reality is by the time you get to the CMO, you're not doing that much anymore. Your team is doing all of it. My job is very simple. I have to hire the right people. 
I have to set really big, aggressive, but achievable goals. And then I have to help the team get the resources they need to hit those goals and remove obstacles. That's it, right? Maybe you could add a fifth element of quality control on that type of stuff. I think my team would say, yeah, I'm a, you know, the editor-in-chief and giving them feedback on all of their blogs and their presentations and positioning documents. But I think that's really the component of it. So I've never defined my success based on the marketing budget. In fact, we've built such a scientific model here that I can confidently turn to our CFO and be like, hey, you decide how much money we have in our budget to give to marketing this year. And I can tell you with a fair amount of certainty how many free trials, how many marketing outbound leads we'll be able to generate given these conversion rates, exactly how many wins we'll be able to generate from marketing source opportunities next year. And then we have to decide if you give me $100, I'm going to deliver Y, give me $10 million, I'm going to deliver Z. How does that fit in to the overall sales funnel, right? So what can our chief revenue officer deliver through sales generated? How much money do we have to give to marketing to do marketing generated? And then what's that delta? How do we want to close that gap? Can we close that gap? And so it's really a conversation, and again, because we've built this very precise model around how we want to invest our dollars and what we can return on it. It's both a fixed and variable cost model. I've got certain fixed costs, right? Got to keep my website running, right? Can't turn that off. Got to keep the people here. We have our employees keep their, you know, the headcount and the salary keep going on that, right? We've got our PR agency that we've got to do. We're a publicly held software company. Can't not have a PR agency. It's bad. You have all those different types of fixed costs, and then you have the variable cost on top of it. And that's how I like to think about it. But I mean, I'm intimately involved in the budgeting process at both the macro ELT level, helping to figure out how we want to invest definitive healthcare resources across the company. And then when I get my slice of the pie or our slice of the pie for allocated to marketing, the leadership team sits down and says, all right, here's what we can deliver back to the business. So let me throw some hard questions at you. First one, what do you do if your CFO says, I'm sorry, there's a delta, but you're going to have to figure out how to make up for it? Like change those conversions. Why are the conversions what they are? Can you increase the conversions, Justin? Sure, we can have that conversation. And we would sit down and talk about what bets are you willing to make. So first off, it's not a guarantee. I'm not going to guarantee something that the team can't deliver. Our CFO would never say this, but the old, your team's got to work harder, work smarter. What does that really mean? It's easy to say, hard to do, right? But if we have a gap, we would sit down and say, okay, do we want to make a bet on our ACV, average contract value going up? Okay, well, it's not going to be a marketing thing to close. It's going to be a sales, marketing, and product conversation. Do we think we can get ACV close? Okay, while we're adding these seven new features, they might appeal to this customer segment. We probably can charge your premium for that. Or, you know what? We're going to launch a new product. We think we can add that on. We originally targeted adding it to 15% of our accounts. What if we add that to 20% of our accounts? Are we all comfortable, sales, product, and marketing, holding hands and saying, yeah, we're going to sign up for five more points of attach rate for this new product. And then we turn to Rick, our CFO, and go, this is a bet. It's an educated bet. We think we can do it, but we've got to do it. And, you know, Rick ultimately has the choice. If he says, you know what, his choice as a CFO is either to take the bet or to invest more in sales or marketing or product or to adjust his expectations down on Wall Street. There's always options, right? But the key is to have a collaborative conversation with your leadership team, not just to say, yeah, we can do that and sign up because that's just not achievable. 
But if the question is purely like make the marketing dollars work harder, is there a playbook or is it just like this is how it works and this is what we know and anything else that we try is a bet? We get better every single day as a team. It's like everything else, right? Training for a marathon, you start off and you can barely jog half a mile. Three months later, you're up to 13, 14 miles, right? So our team, the longer it's in place, the more efficient we get, right? Last year, we rebuilt the website. I don't need to rebuild the website this year, right? We're going to add on. We can add on new pages. We can add on new stuff, right? We built our first major demand generation funnel last year for the new business. This year, we're able to add a funnel for our upsell and our existing business, right? So every year, we add more capability. So of course, we're getting better. And I'm willing to put in a certain amount of defensible improvement in operations because we've been here, we're doing more things, and I'm putting another brick in place every year. But- that's baked into the numbers that the marketing leadership team and I give back to the CFO when we come and do that. We're not sitting there holding anything back or playing those games of, well, I know Rick's going to ask me to do 10% better, so I'll just come in 10% low and then raise when he comes and push it. I don't play those games, don't have time to play those games, no interest in playing those games. We come forward and say this is the best we can do based on all the improvements, and let's have a conversation. I love the transparency and the honesty of what you just said. And I'm asking these questions because I know that a lot of marketers out there are being asked these questions. And I think it's really important that they hear from someone who's gone through many different cycles of this with many different teams. So thank you for sharing that. The other question that's kind of going to move us a little bit into the world of content, how do you think about the scorecard for things that are harder to immediately quantify? You can sort of take the really high-level brand investment as part of that question, but also then curious as a secondary question, how you think about content and whether you think of it as like a completely attributable instrument or not. You got to break it down. First off, you can measure brand, right? You can measure aided awareness, unaided awareness, purchase consideration, and you can do a benchmark study before I say, I'm going to go launch a big advertising campaign. Let's go off and find out. If I walked down the street and said, who's the leader in healthcare commercial intelligence? Because to finish healthcare, roll off your tongue or not, right? And then the second thing would be aided is definitive healthcare, or do you consider definitive healthcare leader in healthcare commercial intelligence? And see if they say yes or no. And I can say, would you consider buying from definitive healthcare? So I, I can measure that, right? Just real quick though, on that point, you can measure that, but it's hard to tie a direct line between the responses, which are qualitative in nature, all the way to the actual commercial behavior later on. And even if you can, it just takes time. So that is another element of difficulty because you have to train your partners, especially your finance partners to have the patience and you can't really do that without a decent data model. And so I'm curious how you thought about that. Yeah, so it does take time, absolutely. And you've got to have a CFO and an FP&A partner who are willing to, A, fund the upfront survey and then realize that, you know, you can't hurry love, you just have to wait. And so it could take six to nine months to do that. And by the way, brand and awareness is a little bit of a gamble. It always is, right? How many failed brand campaigns have we all looked at from the biggest companies in the world, you know, with hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising budget compared to the small little budget that I'm operating on here? So you know that's going to be a gamble. And you've got to make that timing. $2 million for a Super Bowl ad is a gamble, right? And that's how you measure these things. And so that's actually much more immediately measurable. But if you notice, a lot of the Super Bowl ads tend to be consumer-based goods where you can actually measure, did people go to the store on Monday? Did they actually buy something the day after the Super Bowl? Well, now they're doing the QR code thing that's become more popular since Coinbase, but yeah. Exactly. We don't have the money for a big brand advertising campaign. So we try to do better, more cost-efficient ways of whether it's our podcast, whether it is sponsoring speaking events, getting our executives on stage at Fierce Farm or other major biotech events, where we think we have something unique to say, 
we've got this really home court advantage, I would say, because we have the single largest database of reference and affiliation and claims data out there. We have the ability to go and draw macro statements and macro analyses based on data about the healthcare industry. And so people like what we have to say. So if I can say the top 10 trends in healthcare, they're all based on data that we've pulled from our database, which makes us interesting to listen to because it's not like advertising by definitive healthcare, by you should buy definitive healthcare, right? But instead, we do awareness through that type of stuff. We do a lot of white papers. We've done one on like precision medicine, talking about the adoption, looking at data in our database. We just finished one on healthcare staffing, right? And what's going on. We all hear about that healthcare is doctors are quitting in drizzle. We actually quantify that by the number of doctors who filed a claim in 2020 the number of doctors who filed it in 2021 and numbers who are filing so far in 2022. And I can show you quantitatively where the cliff is and in which subspecialty and, you know, which geographies. That's interesting. And so I put that out in terms of awareness. I love the fact that you basically kind of just said, and you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said we don't have the money to do big brand campaigns. And so instead we're doing content. I think you're basically saying instead we're doing thought leadership around topics that we have authority to speak on where we have unique insights that are different. I love that. Exactly. And then that leads to your question, how can you measure content? I can measure content thanks to the web. I can measure content quite well, actually, right? And there's two kinds of content you measure. So you have your publicly facing content and you got like your sales presentation content. We'll talk about that in a second. But for the content like on the web and these white papers or we have these things called healthcare insights, people like to ask, Google questions. What's the largest hospital system in Florida? Which hospital had delivered more babies in New York City last year? We can answer those kinds of questions. We write these things called healthcare insights. And I can tell you that those are one of our leading demand generation engines out there. Because again, we've got real hard data. Google happens to like real hard data that answers a direct question and it's original content. So I can tell you, frankly, which healthcare insights perform best on a day-by-day, how many free trials directly come from that. I can tell you how many downloads we had of the white paper. Because we have got our Marketo and Salesforce instances up, I can tell you that if Joe downloaded our white paper on Monday and then we had a free trial request two weeks later, I'm going to take credit for a correlation on that one, right? And so we actually can say that's a well good piece of performing content. That's one way to measure it. Then there's the other part, and you're talking to someone, again, who grew up in product marketing. You can't measure every piece of content, right? And this is the one, particularly in product marketing, I measure it by the lack of volume from sales. So I spend a lot of time talking to the sales team, up and down, whether it's ISRs to our most senior enterprise sales exec to you know our head of account management and everybody in between. And if product marketing is doing their job, and delivering meaningful content, differentiated presentations, differentiated messaging, useful sales sheets, useful ROI calculators, the volume of complaints you hear from sales is very low. The moment product marketing stops delivering, the volume of complaints you hear from sales goes through the roof, right? And so I measure, frankly, success. And my VP of product marketing, we always laugh about this. His success is, frankly, dictated by the very low volume of complaining, almost negligible volume of complaining that I hear from our sales team. Journalists more like, God, Justin, your team continues to pump out great piece of content after great piece of content. Is that a scorable metric? I don't know how you measure it, but I can tell you, I know real quickly, and I've been in both kinds of product marketing organizations where the sales team is screaming about how bad the product marketing team is. That's how you measure the success. I I really like that. I like the kind of two 
buckets that you've put the measurement in. And I could go on and on about that, but I'm curious as you sort of think about these two buckets and you articulate going back to the conversation with finance, how do you think of content as kind of a, a line item? Is it primarily a cost center or is it a profit center? Well, marketing as a whole is a cost center, right? You got to keep that in mind, right? We're spending money on behalf of the company, right? We technically don't generate any revenue. The sales team generates revenue, right? Now, we are 100% aligned with our sales organization and we have a vertically focused sales organization and our team is lined up in support of that. And so if you're on the biopharma team in marketing, and the biopharma sales team has a great year, you're going to feel that in your bonus positively. If the biopharma sales team has a bad year, you're going to feel that in your bonus negatively, right? And I'm in the same boat. Joe's our head of sales. I'm on his number, right? If Joe has a great year, I feel it. If Joe has a bad year, I feel it, right? And that's the way it should be because then there's never any lack of alignment. There's never any he said, she said, no finger pointing. We're all on the same team. We're all on the same boat. And again, I'm real transparent with everybody who walks into the marketing organization. We live and we die with the sales team, right? We got to help them understand. We got to do everything we can to help them win. And you never can take your eye off the ball in marketing on that. I, I talk to our head of sales multiple times a day, right? I can sit here right now and tell you how we're doing this quarter, how we're doing this week, what deals are going to close this week. And that's just how I like to think about it. I appreciate that. I think it's a very humble approach, to be honest. I've asked this question many times and I think... A lot of marketers talk about the fact that marketing is a profit slash growth function, not a cost function. I think both answers make sense depending on how you contextualize them. But in a B2B world where you're right, you live and die by your sales team, you're just an enabler of their ultimate success. Well, we're a growth function, right? You didn't ask if I was a growth function. You said, are we a profit center or a cost center, right? We are absolutely a growth function, right? And we have that growth mindset every day. We are not trying to shrink down our real estate footprint or anything like that, right? But we're we're spending money. We're often ton of the biggest black boxes of money in the company that's getting spent. We're spending all that money on growth and it's our job to spend that money most efficiently. Totally. Final question for you, Justin. What are your thoughts, well, high level thoughts as you think about your team culture, how you guys continue to work in this world that's a bit of a hybrid, and then just overall of the economic climate over the next 12 months and how you think about your kind of marketing team's remit. Is it still growth or are you guys more in a defensive gearing up for bad things kind of shape? <laughs> I don't think it's ever good for marketing to be in a defensive position, right? We need to think about growth and we need to think about what we can do to help people understand the problems that we can solve, right? It's the job of marketing to help you understand that it's raining, getting wet is really uncomfortable, and we have the best umbrella to help you stay dry. And here's why staying dry is so great, right? And that's our job. And so... Good economy, bad economy, medium economy, it doesn't matter. That job does not change. In terms of the culture, as I said earlier, I'm really, really proud of the culture that we have here. I love my team. I love coming to work with the people that I get to work with every day. And I love bringing them in, getting to know them on a personal and professional level. So I think our idea here as we move forward next year is to continue to engage people, continue to empower people. We have a hybrid culture. You talked about that. Everybody talks about that. I'm in the office every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I invite the team to come in with me. I have an open door policy. I tend to keep Mondays and Fridays as like my writing days because I still do a fair amount of writing in my job. But if you don't want to come in, we're not going to force you to come in. We're going to offer you free lunch on Tuesdays and Thursdays and a cocktail hour on Wednesdays. And so maybe you will want to come in. It's pretty good. But I don't see like 
forcing people to come. I think the world's a different place now. And I think you've got to respect and understand that. And you want people to enjoy being part of the team and being themselves and bringing their whole self to the office. And so that's what I think a lot about, right? How do I make this a place where you want to be and where you feel like your contributions are valued and you feel like you are valued? And that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. I love that. Well, that's a really great note to end on, Justin. Thank you so much for a really great conversation. I couldn't have asked for a more open, direct, and fun guest to have. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Data Driven CMO. Take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at Notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. And thanks for listening.